Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Mary Ann Claude, author of Alex Dances, and Mary Flynn, author of Lumina, Novels where dancing is front and center in the plots of both books. Marianne's latest novel, Alex Dances, features Alexandra Ward Dixon, who comes from a long line of strong-minded women from a prominent southern textile family and who has one goal in life, to be a principal dancer for the American Ballet Theater. She leans on her grandfather but has to fight her ever-determined mother, who has a different idea for her career. Mary Flynn's latest novel, Lumina, depicts social life on Riceville Beach during the summer of 1928, when an early version of the shag was introduced to the Lumina Beach Pavilion, also known as the Palace of Light. Lumina explores race relations, prohibition, new jazz, the sexual revolution, changing roles for women, and class conflict, and has a little romance thrown in for good measure. We start the show with Mary Ann and Mary reading from the opening pages of Alex Dances and Lumina. October 2014. My name is Alexandra Ward Dixon. I'm a junior at Parkersburg Academy. I am tall and skinny, and I don't have any boobs, but I have very long legs. I'm a dancer, so that works for me. My ambition is to be a principal at ABT, the American Ballet Theater. My stage name will be Alexandra Ward, with the ah sound in the middle like Alexandra. I've known since I was six that I would be a dancer. I hear music in my head all the time. The problem is that my parents don't understand how serious I am about a career in ballet. About my parents, I was supposed to be writing this essay about my family. My dad is rich and sort of famous, I guess, and everybody says my mother's beautiful, but I don't look anything like her. I can see why she doesn't want me hanging around. I mean... Honest to God, I get it. A too-tall, bunhead daughter with acne does not fit the picture. Chapter 1. Anne Borden Montgomery Anne Borden Montgomery fingered the large manuscript on her lap, the pages of which had stiffened and yellowed with age. Opening the cover, she took out the letters she had discovered earlier in the day to read to Elle, Nate, and Bernard. Her friend's interest in sharing the old book she'd found surprised her. While going through her late mother's possessions, a task she'd put off for far too long, she'd discovered the manuscript, along with her mother Sylvie's diary, and a collection of letters from her Uncle Kip. Anne Borden had explained to her friends that the book had been written from adaptations of her uncle's letters and her mother's diary entries, and they'd insisted on reading the book aloud to each other. These three people could have been doing plenty of other things on this warm and lovely summer evening, but here they were with her, collected on her front porch, waiting to hear the opening act of the surprise that was yet to unfold for them. Anne Borden had not yet read past the first chapter. Front porches, she thought, were icons of quintessential casual Southern society, the purpose of which has been mostly lost to modern-day homeowners. Just the creak of a foot on old wood filled Anne Borden with her own pleasant childhood memories of comfortable good times, relationships built with relatives, friends and neighbors, and a camaraderie of days gone by. 
Those good times had been lost to three things in her mind. Air conditioning, which kept people inside and away from their neighbors. Television. And those annoying handheld devices that divide so many these days. As fascinating as technology seemed to be to so many, she thought it best to leave it all alone and just talk to people. Some accused her of being too direct, but at 78, what was the point of being evasive? Who knew how much time one had left? Looking to each of her friends as they digested the remnants of their day, she watched them settle into their seats. Author Marianne Claw began writing in the early 1970s, shortly after moving to Tryon, North Carolina, where she became a columnist for the Hendersonville Times News. She's the author of a trilogy of novels, including The Dancing Man, Whirly Gig, and her latest, Alex Dances. Marianne also has published a collection of her favorite newspaper columns called Blue Ridge Pilgrimage, where she explores the many charms of the southern Appalachian region she calls home. She's participated twice as a presenter at the Carolina Mountains Literary Festival and has previewed all of her books at Hub City Bookshop. Marianne is a member of the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance and is a strong supporter of independent bookstores. She lives in Tryon, North Carolina with her husband. A native of North Carolina, award-winning author Mary Flynn long ago fell in love with her state's mountains and its coast, creating the backdrops for her novels. Her award-winning romance novels include A Forever Man, honorable mention in the Reader's Views Literary Awards 2012, Three Gifts, first place award in the Reader's Views 2011 contest, and the Pacific Book Review Best Romance Novel, and Second Times a Charm, honorable mention in the Reader's Views Reviewer's Choice Awards. In addition to romance, Flynn writes contemporary women's fiction, including Bragg Medallion winners The Nest, Breaking Out, and Allegiance. Her 2015 release, A Girl Like That, has won both the Bragg Medallion Award as well as the Reviewer's Choice Award for general fiction. Mary Flynn lives in Summerfield, North Carolina, with her husband. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Marianne, welcome to the show from uh, from Tryon, North Carolina. Thank you. Yeah. Long trip today, but well worth it. Yeah, and Mary, welcome from Summerfield, North Carolina. Thank right? you. Yeah, y'all have come from different directions, right? That's right. But the traffic wasn't too bad, maybe, today? or mm. Mary says it wasn't. Marianne, you said... Well, we were. Uh, it's Friday. It's Friday. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's Friday. <laughs> well, look, um, we'll have to just, you know, listeners, it just so happens we have a Mary and I have a Mary Ann. So, you know, just, you just have to pay closer attention today. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both doing dance books. So, hey, you Ooh. know, yeah, how about that? Uh, well, let's talk about the books for just a second. We've got, uh, we've got Lumina, Mary, that uh, harkens to Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina in the late. 1920s, right? Right. And uh, something must have possessed you to write about this time period, right? Or you, Or you wouldn't have spent the time you did to come up with this great book. So what, what was it? And doing all the research yeah, that went into absolutely. it. Um, well, I was trying to write a sequel to um, a book I'd previously written, A Girl Like That, that's set in Wilmington, Wrightsville Beach. And I usually write contemporary fiction and a friend nudged me to do historical fiction in an effort to get myself more noticed. He said, you know, if you write about an icon that people care about, maybe, you know, people will t- sit up and take notice. He introduced me to a documentary about Lumina, which was actually set in Wrightsville Beach. And I watched it. Was it, it. It, was, it was at the south end of Wrightsville Beach. Right. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was sort of... As you said, the Palace of Lights, it was mm-hmm. the place to be in the, the 1920s, right? Big they, bands came, people came to dance. And they did. It um, was built in 1905, but the story, of course, takes place in 28. 
before the big band era, so to mm-hmm. speak, but there were bands that would come and play for the whole summer. And the gig was you played at the Oceanic for the dinner sets, and then on Saturday night, the band would walk down to Lumina and play the dances. And that was where everybody wanted to be and be seen. As a young woman, you would dress to the nines. You never wore the same dress twice during the summer, and the gentleman had to wear a coat and tie. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just the place to meet and fall in love. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that setting and everything, but we've got a contrast, of, which is good. It's good to have contrast. So, uh, Mary Ann, your book is set, uh, well, not at the beach, right? So <laughs> closer to a community that's uh, Piedmont, Rolling Hills kind of thing. Yeah. In view of the mountains, always. In, in view of the mountains. Small textile town, which is typical of a series of towns that runs from the middle of Georgia along the uh, – the escarpment, the Blue mm-hmm. Ridge escarpment, mm-hmm. all the way up into Virginia. So mm-hmm. it's a story that has some some meat on its bones for the mm-hmm. people who remember those times. And beginning mm-hmm. in the late uh, 20th century, when some government interposition uh, created havoc in the textile industry, the mills began to close because it became cheaper for manufacturers to go overseas. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there were many takes on that situation, Landis. Some people uh, have written about it from the standpoint of the textile workers, and it the, it was not all a happy story. There were uh, there were difficulties. There were union incursions, and the owners of most of the mills fought against unionism at yeah, that time. Yeah. So <clears throat> your your book that we're going to feature today, Alex Dances, is a third book in this uh, trilogy that right. you've got, and you started out. You know, with this uh, textile, really strong woman who's in the textile business. What 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 kind of got you interested in writing about the textile industry and the and the, and the characters that participated in it? My father worked for one of the largest textile companies in the South. Right, there you go. That'll get you started. And <laughs> I grew up in a textile town, so yeah. I was sensitive to both sides of the issues because I went to school with the workers' children, and I went home to the executive branch. Mm. So I felt that there was a lack of sympathy for what some of the good guys had done during Mm -hmm. this crisis and that uh, they were getting a a raw deal because I knew so many of those people. I went to went to school in in Converse in Spartanburg, Mm -hmm. which is another big textile center. And uh, I wanted to tell the story of the good guys. Yeah, And and speaking of issues and calamities and crises and that kind of thing, Mary, your book is set right before the Great Depression, right? Right. Yeah. I did that purposefully because yeah. I wanted to make it happy. Um, happy. The, the happy time <laughs> when everybody thought everything was going to be great forever. And yeah, because we got the flappers. We're going to talk about the flappers right. before it's over. Okay. All right. Mary, I think I understand why you picked the title Lumina for your book because mm-hmm. Lumina is, in, in essence, a character of your book, right? It almost is. It's almost the main character, isn't it? It right? almost is. It's yeah. it has such an allure and it's yeah. such a magical place. Mm-hmm. And Kip says, you know, it's, when you walk in, it's and tell almost, us who Kip is because we're going. Yeah. Kip is one of the main characters. Right. Kip Meeks, twenty years old, yeah. and, um, he, and he's he's a danceaholic, you know. He right. is. Yeah. He's one of the best dancers <laughs> on the dance floor yeah. and yeah. Um, gets all the young ladies' attention. Yeah, but you got this beautiful cover with the lights shining through it. Uh, uh, you can almost see through your cover with the big letters Lumina and the light shining, almost like stars. Because, you know, Lumina sat right there on the surf at Riceville Beach to where the surf actually came up at high tide and might come under the piers, right? That's right. They even had a big movie They had a movie screen out, in the surf. In the surf, so you could sit up on the deck mm-hmm. and look out. Uh, of course, they were silent movies, right? Right. Yeah. It would, probably wouldn't have worked very well with a surf. Yeah, they <laughs> quit. And when the talkies came out, they, they ended that because you yeah. couldn't hear from the surf. Okay. And so, Marianne, your title, Alex Dances, of course, we've got this young girl who wants to be a ballet dancer. Um, did that title come to you right away, or did, was it something that you kind of wrestled with? And Well, I was looking for something that was the antithesis of her family heritage, which had been the textile industry right. and her mother actually went back and after after the major crisis rebuilt a new yeah. uh, based on the old buildings and the old processes she she created a whole new industry for herself including boutiques and 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 that's 
her excuse for that was that, oh, well, I've set this up for Alex. Mm -hmm. When she gets out of college, she will come take over. And Alex, from the time she was six, as she said, knew she wanted to be a dancer. Now, what parents have ever had in their mind what they wanted their kids to grow up to be, and their kids had some other mind, something in their minds? So oh, gosh. That never happens, does it? All, yeah. uh, to all of us, <laughs> to all of us, either yeah. on one end or the other. Yeah. Um, so speak, let's speak about the main characters of both books for just a, a minute. Um, and, and since we're talking about Alex Dances, we'll stay here for just a second. You've got uh, Alex, of course. Uh, She's in her teenage years when, when the book starts. And you've mm -hmm. got Volley, her mother, who was sort of the main character of your second book in the trilogy. Correct. Which was Whirly Gig. And interestingly enough, when I read, and I read both books, of course, uh, but the third book here that we're featuring today, I was a little surprised at how hard you were on Volley because Volley was, a you know, in the second book, she was someone you're really pulling for. Uh, you know, she was overcoming a lot. She was starting her own business. And and now in the third book, I guess she's matured a bit, but now she wants to continue to sort of force her will on her own child, right? She was not terribly enthusiastic about getting married yeah. or about having this child. Okay. And she always felt that... Because she was driven to be a business she person. She really... And the totally fa fashion focused. industry and that kind of thing. Totally focused. Yeah, she, and, didn't, she didn't want to follow the textile route, as I recall, except to the extent she could be creative in the fashion world. She didn't want to be running a textile mill. But she wanted to be in the fashion world, right? She wanted it both, okay. both ways, and she had it both ways. She was mm -hmm. one of the most controlling women I've ever run into. Okay. And we'll, we'll, pick, we'll we're going to pick up on that in just a minute. So we got Alex and Volley, two very strong women. And in uh, your book, uh, Mary, the opening reads you had with Anne Montgomery, you've, you've kind of got a present and a past thing going on here, right? Anne Montgomery's got her friends sitting around on the front porch, kind of like uh, you know the old friends series except they're much older right mm -hmm. and they're telling stories on the front porch but then most of the book is back in this time with sylvie and kip tell us who they are right so it's a parallel story and uh, sylvie and kip grow up in a middle class home on market street in wilmington and actually we would consider that a mansion right now it's in the mansion district the house that I modeled it after. Uh, but there's another echelon of society there, of course, and um, and that's the, the really rich people. The Carmichaels are those people. And they, of course, own two homes in Wilmington, one downtown and one over on Wrightsville Beach. Well, Kip and Sylvie um, are, you know, they're in their coming-of-age kind of uh, age range. Sylvie's naive, 17, trying to grapple with this whole world of what's going on with the flappers and the sexual revolution and this new forwardness. And she's only been kissed one time and she's trying to make sense of it all. Whereas Kip is openly embracing all of this sexual revolution and this um, these forward women. Except he, he's trying to date up. Right, book, right, right. And, and he's which, 20. Which creates the class conflict that you're going to put in your book. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so, all right, well, let's talk about, uh, you know, again, the little towns here where these were set. Uh, uh, Marianne, you, you're, the town in your book is Parkersburg, right? Right. Fictional town? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the town because you got a very short read here you're going to do. Um, it's a textile town, but times have changed, right? And the, in writing this book, I, I started out to, to finish the trilogy, mm -hmm. and I knew I was going to be facing some difficult decisions when I got there. But as the book turns out, it turned out to present three parallel sets of relationships between the, the grandparents, the parents, and, and uh, Alex and her relationships with young men. And so, you know, I, I, I ended up with something that I didn't know I would start it yeah. out to do, well, which that, was kind that, of interesting. Isn't that how novels sometimes are? You start mm -hmm. one way and end up another. Take but you got these different, okay, you talked about these different generations here. Mm -hmm. The town also has gone through a generational shift. So I'm going to have you read okay. now a very short piece. Of kinda, and, and before we do that, the characters in this particular read are Anson and Ted. Right. Tell us who Ted is. Ted is the hero of The Dancing Man, the first book I wrote. Okay. And, he, and he's the grandfather of Alex. He's the grandfather of Alex. And the and, father of Volley. And the father of Volley. Yeah. And believe me, that has not been an easy yeah. path to trod for Ted. But Ted has uh, sort of come around in his older years and... Uh, 
become wiser, and he's remarried Anson. Right. Who was a chemistry major and yeah. teaches at the university. So this is a conversation between Anson and Ted about going out on the town. So just pick it up there. Social opportunities have broadened with the revocation of the blue laws, which limited liquor sales. The old Parkersburg crowd, including the Brunsons and the Dixons, continued to frequent the private clubs. But on their way to the mall last weekend, Anson commented on the full parking lots at the sports bars and the Asian and Mexican restaurants that had popped up in the old buildings downtown. Where did all these people come from? Answered, wondered out loud. Maybe we should skip the club one night and see what one of these places has to offer. They have attended occasional city center festivals and found loud music, food trucks, and people dancing in cordoned off streets. They rarely saw a familiar face, but children were everywhere. Ted liked that part of the equation, the idea of the city revitalizing itself. He saw most of this coming years ago, and it feels good to have these predictions come true. <laughs> That's nice. Well, and, and so in your books, uh, we've got the club scene, the country club features a lot. And, mm -hmm. you know, Mary Lumino was kind of a club for the masses, mm -hmm. right? Right. I mean, anybody could come, right? Mm -hmm. All they had to do was have, they had to get on the streetcar, the mm -hmm. trolley, because mm -hmm. at that point in time, that was the only way to get to the island. Right. right. And for those who don't know Riceville Beach, I, it's sort of my ancestral beach. I had a great grandmother who started a <laughs> hotel there. Yeah. It was named the Landis Hotel. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of wow. his history there for us. And mm -hmm. Station One is kind of right there where that hotel used to be. Okay. Uh, but you go on around, you come across the drawbridge, uh, the intercoastal waterway. Mm -hmm. And I think one interesting fact, you brought it out in your book too, is that uh, Roswell Beach was um, developed by someone who wanted to sell energy. Power, right, right, right. So, Hugh McRae, he yeah. was the president of the Power and Light Company. Right, and so what does he do? He builds a trolley, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so where's the trolley going to go? It's going to go to a really fancy dance place down at the south end of the beach mm -hmm. and have to pass a lot of other places that he's trying to develop mm -hmm. along the beach, right? Exactly. And so um, you'd get a ticket, you'd go out, and you have a scene here that will kind of give us a little feel for Kip's excitement and just to set it up a bit, to understand your book, the narrator has come across, I guess, a diary and some letters, right? That's right. And the diary is from her mother. Mm -hmm. so who is Sylvie. Mm -hmm. Syl and Syl mm -hmm. So her, mo her mother Sylvie, and Sylvie's the one we're going to hear from in the past. But then Kip is writing letters to a friend mm -hmm. of him who's laid up somewhere with a broken leg, right? Right. You can just see these two guys with their bowlers going out, you know, trying to mm -hmm. you know, squire the women around in their flappers and everything. That's Kip, right? <laughs> that is Kip. <laughs> so Kip's writing in his diary. So could you pick it up there and read that little section that Kip's writing to his friend? And Perry is the person who eventually writes this novel that they're all reading on the porch. So this first letter to Perry is dated May 10th, 1928. You will miss the best part of all, the summer dances at Lumina. I may not have told you what a gem the place is. One of the largest beach pavilions around, it's a real spectacle with over 6,000 electric lights to torch it up against a dark summer sky. Its name in tall letters several feet high stands atop the roof, lit entirely with light bulbs. It's a sight to behold. The best of the bands come there to play for the summer, and thousands of people from all walks of life, tourists and locals, middle class and aristocrats alike, arrive to dance the evening away on a Saturday night. Lumina is the great equalizer for young people who are out for a bit of fun and to celebrate the happiness of youth. Many a romance has been born at Lumina, I'll tell you. Okay, so we got romance in the air happening at uh, Lumina. Um got a little romance in Alex dances we'll talk about that as we go but uh Alex I think is more determined to dance uh, than she is to, to engage in romance but I think um you know one of the things I think in both of your books is you're seeing a change in in these settings uh, of course you know the textile towns are having to reinvent themselves uh the beach has just um changed so much mm -hmm. since then we don't have, you know, a trolley to get there. We can drive our cars <laughs> down mm -hmm. there now. Uh, and But Lumina hung around for a while, right? And it went through a lot of different mm -hmm. change. Almost like a, it became like a strip mall at some point that was dilapidated because yeah. it just was sort of running down. And they tore it down in the 70s. Right. And wouldn't it be nice if that somebody had decided to, it's a historic 
site to restore that. And, and if do, it had waited 10 more years, 10 the more preservationist years. movement would have saved it probably. Yeah, and they could have had a dance hall there mm-hmm. kind of thing over the ocean. But maybe that land's too valuable. It's like anything else. Uh, when my grandmother died, she was in her 90s. You know, that land just kind of went away, mm-hmm. and now there's a really big place there that doesn't belong to our family. Yeah. <laughs> and now where Illumina was is condos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So every, everything, everything's changing. Mm-hmm. So there's condos and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So Landis, do you think people who are not from North or South Carolina understand the significance of the beach? Yeah, you know, I, we, yeah. that we all grew up, and that's where we went on right. vacation. That was vacation. They, they, mm-hmm. I, we used to joke with my jet dad that uh, – he went to Riceville Beach almost every summer of his life, and mm-hmm. that was what he scheduled. And, I, and we kidded him that if he ever went to Myrtle Beach, they would shut down his credit card. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they would think there was some identity somebody fraud. Somebody had stolen yeah. it. Somebody stolen for sure. There uh, was some rivalry, I guess, between those beaches. Yeah, but, uh, uh, in, in South Carolina, we always went to South Carolina beaches. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. Wrightsville is as close as it is. Yeah. I, I made a trip there as an adult just to find out what it was like. So before the break here, let's do a little talking about dance because that, you know, that really fills up the pages of your books. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ballet, um, Marianne, why did you choose ballet as your dance of choice for the book? I had a little help from my friends on yeah. in a couple of spots I mean, in this book. Do you have book. any ballet in your background? No. Like from age three have... to six, maybe? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was the pudgy kid at the back of the line. I was never very good at that. But I was a singer. I was a performance major in okay. college and right. sang opera and light opera and heavier opera. And I thought at first maybe that's what I wanted to go with, and then I realized it was much too personal for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. want to touch that subject. So how did you educate yourself on ballet? Did a you- friend of mine, uh, a very good friend uh, named Sandra Miller, it is a former prima ballerina with the Dallas uh, ballet company and she happened to be my Pilates coach mm. and when I started talking about writing this book she said well you know if I can be of any help let me know little did she know <laughs> she was practically the co-author of the book because mm-hmm. I had no background and she she helped me with dialogue she helped me with uh, French pronunciation she helped me to know what to avoid so that I would be real the book would be real for people who are in ballet and for people who aren't Mm. yeah and both of you have to try to bring to life uh, on the written page what now you know we would turn to YouTube for right to see somebody spinning somebody or at a dance contest Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing and so you really had to think hard about the moves and what it looked like and how people felt in the arms of someone else or when they were twirling or whatever. Uh, and so we got two scenes here. We're going to start first, um, and then we'll come back to the dances at Lumen after we talk ballet. But uh, start first, Marianne, with a little read that you've got that illustrates um, one of the scenes of ballet in your book. Before you read this, Marianne, could you just set up this scene for us? Okay, this is a dance recital that uh, Alex and her partner, Matt, are going to perform the Grand Potter from Act 3 of Don Quixote, and it's legendary for its difficulty and for its enormous drama. So here we go. Matt leaps onto the center stage, lands in the spotlight, bows his head, his dark curls glistening. He holds the position long enough to maximize the effect, moves into a slow turn, showing off the costume, an open-decked white shirt with full sleeves ending with ruffles at the wrists. The muscles of his thighs bulge in black tights, accenting the slimness of his hips and complementing the broadness of his shoulders. A collective sigh rises from all the women in the audience. Alex floats out from the wings, hesitates a moment, dances to him, Her costume is a standard short white platter tutu, six layers of stiff tulle extending outward from the waist. There is nothing to distract from the dance itself or from the majesty of Alex's long legs. They present the potty dirt joyfully, making the complex moves look like child's play, like a game of chase. 
Matt attacks the male variation with a stunning array of turns and power leaps that leave the audience gasping. His leaps seem to catch and hold suspension at the top. For half a second, he seems frozen in air before descending. At the end, after accepting a roaring appreciation from the audience, Matt moves aside, offers the full stage to Alex. The final variations in Coda belong to her. She flirts with the audience, charming them with her unabashed enthusiasm and confidence. And so it begins. In those moments, the stage and the world belong to Alex. Her body responds to the music automatically, the turns and leaps so familiar she can diagram them. For her, the world no longer exists outside the moment. Her spirit soars with her body. She's flying. Real time ceases to exist. There is no time except the rhythm of the music. Every nerve and muscle says, yes, Alex, yes, this is what you live for. Okay, I'm, I'm all ready to stand up and cheer like somebody just scored a touchdown. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, it's, it's not, a, it's not yeah. unlike that, yeah. technically. It's, the, it's the, not athletic, the, yeah. The, the ballet dancing mm-hmm. is, is de- demands the same kind of self-discipline and training yeah. that a quarterback does. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, it took me a while to figure that out. When I was a young married guy, my wife took me to the Nutcracker, and we were sitting there, <laughs> and I leaned over to her about five minutes into it and said, now, when are they going to say something? You know? <laughs> but uh, I've learned, I've learned, you know, and, and, I, and I, I do know this. I do know it takes a lot of energy and a lot of talent to do with those dancers. And training. Do and training. Endless training. Endless training. So um, I'm looking at the time here. We're going we're gonna to take a short break and then shift, uh, oh, about 50, 60, 70 years and go back to, <laughs> to Lumina dancing. So uh, – Listeners, when we come back, you're going to hear about dancing in, of the 1920s at Lumen at Riceville Beach. We're also going to do the writing life segment. Uh, we've got some readings that uh, illustrate conflict in both books because you can't have a good book without conflict, uh, maybe one or two to finish. So uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Sarah Vavra, voice talent. You've heard her voice on Charlotte Reader's podcast. Sarah, how long have you been doing this? Mm, decades now. Yeah, and you, uh, you were a... DJ at one time? I was. I, yeah. I, uh, Virginia Beach and Norfolk yeah. and also in Austin, Texas. Yeah, and, and talk show as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, talk show host as well. Yeah, so what kind of voice work do you do? Generally speaking, I've done a lot of commercial work. I do podcasts, uh, narrate training videos. Um, you know, I can put people to sleep with meditations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you brought a little extra verve to Charlotte Reader's podcast. Aw, uh, thanks. Yeah. So what do you enjoy about it? What what? Uh, what makes this uh, an interesting, engaging activity? I've always thought that the human voice was um, just a very powerful way of communicating and uh, something about the way each individual hears a voice all alone by themselves. It's a really personal one-on-one kind of experience, and to be a part of that has just seemed very magical for me. So um, I I love doing voice work. Yeah, and what's your goal when you work with a client? What I'm trying to do is to express what they want to express but perhaps don't have the voice or don't know how to express it in a microphone they might be you know shy or whatever but i try to kind of like the reason you were on charlotte (laughs) (laughs) there you go you got it (laughs) and and how do you get ready for it uh i like to talk to the client i like to find out really what their imagining the voice work should sound like and that helps a lot so if a, if an author or someone who's listening who has a small business or a big business needs some voice work they can hire you to do that they can absolutely uh, hire me okay. to do that all right because all right listeners you can find sarah at sarah voice at gmail.com reach out to her there and uh maybe you get the chance to uh, work with her like i have sarah thanks so much for uh sharing some time with us thank you landis i appreciate it Charlotte Reader's podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with uh, Marianne Claude, author of Alex Dances, and Mary Flynn, author of Lumina, and we've been talking dancing, um, and, and over the break, uh, 
here we were talking. I think, Mary, you said your daughter was uh, in ballet when she was younger. That's right. right. She danced with the Greensboro Ballet for five years. So you could kind of relate to this book that uh, Marianne had written. Oh, yeah. 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 I think my daughter was in it for a year or two. We had the little flowers we brought up, you know, after they were done Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the dance and all that. So, okay, so... We have um, a different dance styles are coming together in different uh, outfits. The, the the dresses are getting slinkier, shorter. Women are letting their maybe what hair up, I guess, with the bobs. They're not not down, so right, to speak, at right. that time period. Talk about uh, what it was like to be a woman in 1928 at Riceville Beach with a chance to go dance. At Lumina. At Lumina. Well, they would, of course, look for the short dresses. They were bobbing their hair. They were putting on makeup, um, smoking in public. And mm. uh, even though there was national prohibition going on, they were drinking as well. And <laughs> yeah, You had a little scene where they hit, oh, they hide yeah. the flask in the sand. Right? All the men would, <laughs> yeah. uh, as soon as they'd jump off the trolley, they'd trot down to the beach and bury their flasks in the sand. Yeah, and yeah. Um, at the dance intermissions, they would all go down to the beach and, and they'd, they'd ask their date if they wouldn't like to come down to the beach for, sure. a, little, for a little shot you mm-hmm. know maybe right. a little kiss maybe. here behind the well, jetty, and or jetty or something down yeah. by the jetties and tell people, it, what, people don't know what jetties are but I, I just saw them when i was very young talk about the jetties at riceville beach there were no dunes and at first when i was writing i had them running off to the dunes i realized in 1928 they didn't have in, dunes right. they had jetties <laughs> and jetties were these rock formations that were built by the black population out into the ocean that would uh, prevent the erosion. And mm-hmm. there was one, um, if you went out from Lumina down past the Oceanic Pier, there was one that it's still there, actually, that um, goes right out into the ocean. So they would run down there and jump over the jetty and get on the dark side and have their conversations or make-out yeah. sessions or whatever it was. They were like big telephone poles lashed together that went out into the surf, and they were about every 100 yards. And they were mm-hmm. very dangerous because when the when the waves are pushing you uh, – my dad was a lifeguard down there as a mm-hmm. young, young guy, and I think – a lot of young girls pretended to be caught near the jetty so he could come save them. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had fun doing that. So we got the jetties. We got the hiding the flask in the sand. Um, and uh, we've got this scene you're going to read that's going to give us a little illustration of, you know, what it was like to be on the big dance floor. Um, and the two characters in this scene are Kip and Catherine, right? Right. Tell us, you've told us about Kip. Tell us who Catherine is. So Catherine is the, the aristocrat girl that um, that everybody wants to dance with, and she's sort of an untouchable, uh, but she somehow takes an interest in Kip, and he doesn't really understand it. Um, he's quite awed by her. So he is uh, meeting her on the dance floor. Will you dance with me tonight? Silly, that's why I came. I want you to show me how to do some of those new dance steps. I've watched you. You're a good dancer. Not like you and your sister, though. I know the basic steps. I just don't have the verve. (laughs) That's the easy part. I can't really teach you that. You just feel it and let yourself go. Let the music take you over. Throw all your damn self-control out the door, I said with a mischievous twinkle in my eye. You become the music for all to see. Or maybe the music becomes you. Whatever the case, it's all the same, don't you think? She thought it over as the orchestra was starting up with a lively sugarfoot strut, opening the night in an upbeat way. Everyone took to the floor. Realizing I was still holding her hand, I led her to the dance floor and we jumped into the mix. I'd purposely avoided promising anyone dances, even Sylvie. Catherine didn't protest, but I wondered whether Clifton would seek her out since I'd taken over his intended partner. I watched him make his way to Stag Island, but he didn't appear to be looking for another partner. He was watching us. I didn't care. I turned my attention to Catherine and took her in my arms, trying to keep my heart from pounding out of my chest. She knew to look at my eyes rather than my feet due to years of training and numerous cotillions in her repertoire despite the reserve in her steps. We did an easy version of the flat Charleston, like everybody else on the floor, and she followed effortlessly, her hand on my shoulder light as a feather. It was safe dancing, what the older folks would approve of, and I'm sure we made a swell-looking pair on that finely polished dance floor. Eyes were on us, even if we weren't doing anything special. 
Okay, that's nice. that's great. Yeah, and and so does anybody in the room here remember a Stag Island? <laughs> no, that was before our time, right? right. I did take uh, cotillion growing up, and I guess you had to stand off to the side and break in and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But this was actually in the middle of this. You can imagine the middle of this huge dance pavilion, right? Mm-hmm. The guys would stand there, and when everyone's dancing around them, well, they just cut in, right? Right from there, and they would call it breaking. Breaking, not, not cutting in. I thought that was the term, but that back then they called it breaking. They called it breaking. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you had safe dancing, and you had right. somebody that stood off to the side and kind of watched if they were getting a the bit, matron. bit too close. The yeah. matron, yeah. and she would report any uh, bad activity <laughs> to the bouncer, and he would wow. send them out, send uh, them back out to the trolley line in a flash. In a flash. Okay. All right. Well. Um, Let's talk writing for a minute because, and then we're going to come back with a couple more scenes and talk about your books and conflict and that kind of thing. But I do this little section called The Writing Life where I kind of dive into the backgrounds of your writing. You've both written a number of books, uh, and Mary Ann, you wrote a bunch of columns. Uh, Mary, you've been writing. But Mary, you didn't come to, I mean, you were doing something else before you started writing books, right? right? I was a speech pathologist for 32 years. And I started writing uh, 10 years ago. I was still working, and I had written four books um, while I was still working. And I started that when I was an empty nester, and everybody was out of the house. My husband was traveling, and I would come home from work and didn't want to watch bad TV. So I started writing this book. It had been in my head for 30 years, and it all came tumbling out, and I couldn't stop it, never have stopped it. That's great. And go ahead. Landis, the thing about this book that is so amazing from from a writerly standpoint mm-hmm. is the organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I tried to visualize a storyboard for yeah. Mary, and she perfectly weaves each of these characters. You're never far enough away from any of them to lose track of who they are. Yeah. And that's that's a real that's a real gimme in writing. It's hard to do. Thank you. Um, yeah, and did you have and and speaking of storyboards and that kind of thing, do um because Mary, you did, as Marianne said, had you're going back and forth from the mm-hmm. past to the present. And so it, it could look like a ping pong match unless mm-hmm. you're careful. So how do you, did you have a storyboard? Did you have something up? Did you, How do you keep track of all that? Outline? What do you do? I didn't have a storyboard. I don't really ever outline, but I had it in my head that um, I was going to have these four characters, Ann Borden, Elle, Nate, and Mr. May. They were going to be introducing each chapter from the old story, and they would take turns doing that. And it would, So no outline. Right. Just, just, you just wrote and your way into the story. Right. Yeah. And I just wanted them to... to since it is a parallel story, I wanted them to each have weigh in on what was going on in their own lives because it did um, mirror a lot of what was going on with Kip and Sylvie in mm-hmm. 1928, such as the love triangle. Mm. Okay, so Marianne, did you use outline? Are you an outliner? Or are you a- no, um, actually. Alex's dialogue, her little mm-hmm. her little monologue there at right. the beginning, was kind of a gift from the blue. I was looking for some way to create uh, a sense of comfort for my readers, mm-hmm. to give them some backstory without giving them too much, because mm-hmm. I've already written the two books, you know. Yeah. It, it, but I, you also have to balance when you're doing sequential books, as Mary mm-hmm. will will tell you. Uh, you've got to balance it so that a new reader can come in and have a comfort level with up. who all these people are. Right. And, I, and I'm sure Nora, your editor, who helped uh, edit, edit my edit, yeah. was my editor too. I'm sure she was all over you about those kind of concepts, right? Absolutely, <laughs> she was great. And it, so, you know, in in essence, I knew the beginning. Uh, once, uh, actually, the the idea to present uh, this uh, essay on Alex's part came from my own experience, because back in the olden days when my kids went to college, they had to write an essay, an mm-hmm. entry essay, to go to the college. And it was a huge, huge issue in my family. Uh, who ha- we My children got a little more help than they needed mm-hmm. <laughs> to write these essays. So I knew it was... It was something that would give Alex's viewpoint of what was going on in her family and what she has to deal with, and that just clicked. And what then I was in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, let's talk that, about, talk about process just a second because both of you have written a number of books, and people are sometimes curious about that. Uh, Mary, what's your process? Uh, do you write in the morning, in the evening? Do you? 
what gets you going? What gets you started? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of whenever I get a chance. And um, back when I was writing after work, it was always in the afternoon and evening. But now that you got the luxury of being a writer that can put a book out every year, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, and and now the odd (laughs) thing is um, my husband is working at home. And he works less and travels less than he was. So now we're so having to getting, share the office. he's getting in your way. Is that exactly? <laughs> we have to set a schedule. <laughs> yeah. And when, I, when I'm ready to sit down and, and get ready to write, I'll yeah. tell him, you know, yeah. I need to be at this computer yeah. from 3 o'clock on or whatever time. Yeah. And he's very uh, flexible about that. So yeah. and he, I, I, he I would suggest you get another computer. Yeah. Well, you know, he has a laptop so he can move anywhere in the yeah. house where yeah. I have my nice yeah. big desktop with my big screen and yeah. I get first dibs. All right, so That's the way to so, do it. So Marianne, where do you write and what's your routine? Actually, when Olin and I have been married for 10 years and when when we got married, he said, well, what shall we travel? What would you like to do? And I said, well, I've always wanted to write a novel. And mm-hmm. he said, okay, tell me what I can do to help. Well, you said get out of the way. Yeah. I mean, just, <laughs> we Realize. have offices that back up to each other. Yeah, he yeah. has a photographic memory. He has a wonderful memory for music, yeah. which, you know, I was in, when we were in college, I was singing Mozart and Verity, and Olin was dancing. He was doing the shag at the beach mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. South Carolina <laughs> beach. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, he could fill in all of these spaces, historic spaces mm-hmm. and historic music that I didn't have. And he's been very generous about hauling me around places and and uh, helping me with research and yeah. because he's much better. Read so where, than where I do am. you go? Uh, where do you go to find your muse? Where do, where does your muse hang out? Oh, uh, right there in right. front of my yeah. mm-hmm. in front of my screen. Yeah. How about you, Mary? Yeah. And my husband is the same way. He mm-hmm. he takes me around and we mm-hmm. do the research together, and he yeah. gets into it. Okay. We a lot of times we sit on the front porch with a glass of wine and we talk over the characters yeah. and the plot lines. Usually, this is in the evening when I have him hostage with that wine, and <laughs> it just is so I, I, much good fun. Plan. So, with my uh, second book, I, I was my wife and I were driving different places, and I would play this "what if" game. Well, what if this or what yes. if mm-hmm. yes. Yes. Play, mm-hmm. play very helpful. Play, mm-hmm. Playing what if is a nice way to get ideas going in your right. head. So here's a question. What's the best money you ever spent as a writer? Probably buying that computer. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he's using it too. No, he has the laptop. <laughs> okay. How yeah. about you, uh, Mary? Hire Nora. Hire Nora. Yeah. Nora yeah. has been with me through four yeah. books yeah. now. And Nora Gaston Estheimer at Lystra Books has just held my hand through a couple of agonies, but uh, right. we made it, you know. Can so I change my answer? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you can. How about this? Why don't you just amend your answer? Yeah. I love my editor, yeah. and I've been with him for nine books now, and yeah. he lives in Marquette, Michigan. I've never met him. Tyler Tischler is his name. Really? He's uh, 10 years it's my all, junior. all by email? And, and yes, yeah. yes. How'd you find him, Mary? Yeah. I was working with the publishing coach a self-publishing coach and he recommended Tyler to me and um, he was actually the proofreader on my first book he was not my editor on the first book and I wish Mm -hmm. he had been my editor uh, because we just have this wonderful relationship and bond and he's such a good teacher he's a PhD in English literature Mm -hmm. and and was a teacher so um, he just he's just wonderful and he if I'm ever on the wrong track he focuses yeah. me right back where I need to be and he calls me on the historical things and he, so, he researches along with me. So let me let me ask this question. We talked a little bit about writing, but in terms of, you know, a lot of really good uh, independently published books out there, yours um, included, um, but because you work with people that are that are good, you know, they're editors, mm-hmm. they're yeah. book designers, that, that kind of thing. Um, what are some of the techniques you've used uh, as indie publishers to connect with readers? Mary? Well, I do a lot of um, book talks at, um, I've been a, a, a guest at a writer series in Wilmington this summer. I was the guest speaker in July for the Plantation Village uh, writer series. I do um, lots of fairs and festivals where I can connect with people I, and sell I, I the books. I met you at the Valley Fair up in Valley right, Crucis about, right. about five years ago. Yeah, right? yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was just there last weekend. <laughs> Missed you. I know. I was at a mm-hmm. wedding. I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't get there. But, uh, you know, this thing sometimes interfere. Yeah. Uh, how, about you, how about you, Marianne? How do you connect with your readers? Um, at, at first, I had this wonderful network set up 
through Olin's connection, he had been uh, part of the development process mm-hmm. for the uh, – branches of the University of South Carolina and actually had met my parents coincidentally mm-hmm. when they when they uh, were first creating the the uh, branch in Lancaster so he had friends all over South Carolina and he would call up a friend of his and say look I've got a, a new wife here and she's written this book and uh, if your wife has a book group could we come tell you about this book you didn't even have to pay your publicist i did not well not that time not not that guy by the time i got into the third or fourth book i hired a publicist and i hired a really good one and she's terrific and we're just sailing with alex dances because as it turns out alex dances is very appealing to young dancers yeah and so we've got a YA book, a, a young adult book here, as well as a sequel closer. So that's great. So it's getting easier. Final, <laughs> final writing life question. Um, think about this. Um, how has writing changed your life? Who wants to take that? Wow, I'll go first. All right. I was so introverted, and of course that's why I'm a writer. But. Um, <laughs> You know, and having to market these books and go out and talk in front of groups and speak at book clubs and, and different different um, events, you know, I really had to come out of my shell quite a bit and be not only a marketer, but a public speaker and um, my own publicist, my own advocate. Uh, you know, my mom always told me it wasn't good to toot your own horn. If you're that good, somebody else should toot it for you. Yeah. Well, I have had to toot my own horn. There's nothing and wrong with tooting your own horn. No. Right, no. right. In fact, a lot of times, it's, I, I like to tell this story. My dad sold encyclopedias one summer when he was about 16, and he would go to the neighbors and say, you don't really want to buy any of these encyclopedias, do you? <laughs> yeah. have, have you ever seen the author who's almost apologetic when he's yes, trying to get, right. get, get his or her friends to buy their books? No, don't be apologetic. You spent a lot of time exactly. working on this. It's a good product. You know, sell it. Tell people Be about loud it. and proud. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How about you, Marianne? Um, I think it opened up a whole new world for me uh, to to all of a sudden have a career in your 70s. It's mm. just ridiculous yeah, never, it is it is so much fun it's never, never too late <laughs> it, it, you can it, even become a podcaster at age 61 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it just uh it just felt very comfortable and very yeah. natural and and i'm a performer by nature i i think they fed me too many cookies when i was not dancing very well as a child <laughs> um but I wanted very much to tell the story, and I wanted to try to explain to people what it's like to be a performer, what what the demands are on your time, uh, and what what you're inside, what it feels like inside uh, to actually stand in front of a group of people and and exhibit this this talent that you've been given that uh, that you have honed like you would sharpen a knife or mm. it's it's just such a wonderful adventure that's great i want more people to try it <laughs> <laughs> all right so now we're going to shift here we're going to shift a little conflict because as we said at the outset as, as, as we often say unless there's any conflict going on in the book there's not much to keep you interested right i mean <laughs> if everybody's thinking the same way or everybody's you know heading in the same direction <clears throat> no you don't have you don't have something worth worth paying attention to so starting first with uh lumina We've got, uh, Mary, you've got conflict uh, that involves class and race, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, the class you've already kind of hinted at because Kip is squiring Catherine. Catherine's in a different stratosphere. She lives mm-hmm. at the big house. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining early gardens. Exactly. Some house up and way back up off the road, mm-hmm. you know, big white mansion of some kind, you mm-hmm. know, long driveway. Uh, and her father is sort of working Kip over one evening when Kip comes to pick him up and uh so let's hear that exchange between the sort of class-minded father and kip who's trying to step up in the world so they're downstairs in the sort of a speakeasy environment and um clayton carmichael is with clifton and kip and kip's getting the third degree and clifton is Catherine's brother older brother yeah, her so, chaperone so so kip is kind of cornered by the father and the brother of the woman he wants to be with right so Kip is narrating. We raised our glasses, and then the Inquisition began. 
So, Kip, how's your summer going so far? Carmichael asks, swirling the brown liquid in his glass. Great, sir. I'm working in the Sanssouci garage this summer. Yes, that's what Catherine tells me. Very admirable working on your trade while you're home on holiday. The way he said trade led me to believe it would have been beneath him. You're studying automotive engineering. Yes, that's right. I plan to work in Detroit one day for a car manufacturing company, I said, looking him squarely in the eyes and breathing in deeply to extend my height. Is that right? Yes, sir. I'm impressed with the work Henry Ford is doing, and I have great respect for his cars. Do you race? No, sir. I do like to drive, though, and I'm interested in the workings of the cars. I should like to design them myself one day. Lofty goals. Good for you, wanting to lift yourself out of the retail world. It's who you know, of course, that can pave the way for you. Henry Ford is an excellent fellow. I've met him several times, he added, taking a sip of his scotch. I sipped mine, too, watching a subtle smirk appear on Clifton's lips. And Lumina. Catherine says you're quite the dancer. I saw that for myself just now. I could feel the heat rising under my collar. I enjoy dancing, yes, and music, especially jazz. Lumina's the best place to be for all of that, of course. Of course. You also seem to enjoy being with Catherine. Do you have intentions toward our daughter? He asked, flicking the ash of his cigarette into an ashtray on the bar. I enjoy her company quite a bit. He watched me, making the ensuing silence even more awkward. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> She's quite a young lady. Yes, she certainly is. Catherine has quite a future before her. She seems to enjoy going to the dances this summer as well. I hope you're treating her with the proper amount of respect she deserves. Yes, sir, of course. I have her best interest at heart. I believe Clifton can vouch for me on that count, I said looking at him as he lifted his glass to his lips. Well, I wasn't too pleased hearing about your escapades with Catherine down by the jetties last evening. That kind of thing just won't do, you understand? So uh, <laughs> I like I, I, I can see this guy right yeah. here. <laughs> and down by the jetties, Clifton couldn't find his sister because she was down by the jetties with Kip, with Kip. having a little time together. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, you're channeling a little bit Great Gatsby here, aren't you? Yeah, with, with some of the, yeah, what's going it's on. It's Great yeah. Gatsby meets Dirty Dancing. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good tagline. That right? is. That's you, great. You need to use that to promote. All right. So let, I do. <laughs> let's let's shift to some conflict in Alex dances. Uh, Marianne, you've got a, this intra-family conflict, two strong women, a theme that's carried over in the trilogy because uh, you've got the grandmother and then you've got uh, Volley in the second book and then Volley reappears but in a sort of reincarnation of herself. <laughs> yeah. and, and well, she mellows out at, yeah. after she has this uh, yeah. illness yeah. later she, on. She but. does have an illness in the book, but here's mm -hmm. a scene earlier in the book they kind of, you know, Alex is a young teenager, so this this is almost a typical. I was laughing when I read the uh, read the scene here. You can just see it happening. And Hughes, Hughes is the husband who's dutifully going along. He's he's got a law practice. He could run for office, but Volley's kind of getting in the way with that because she's got her own designs for yeah. her business. And so he's in this scene too. So it's Alex, it's Volley, her mother, and Hughes, her father. Does that dog have a name? What? The dog. Does she have a name? Goldie. She's at least part golden retriever. Or, or that's what the vet says. I got her at the pound. What's that got to do with anything? Well, I'm away for a couple of weeks, and you get a dog, and Alex goes off the deep end about this fool dancing business, in which, I might add, my father and his opinionated wife are complicit. They have no business interfering in the way we raise our daughter. What's more, there may be another problem. When she hugged me Friday night at Ted and Anson's, she smelled like beer and juicy fruit. As if on cue, they hear Alex's voice at the back door. Morning, can I come in? She appears in the breakfast room in jeans and a sweatshirt. You're out early, Hughes says. Got to pick up a book I left upstairs in my room, paper due tomorrow. She stretches her arms over her head and drops them to her sides in a balletic gesture. What a night for the Dixons. Nice going, Dad. Everybody flipped when you two walked in, and then you made that terrific speech. 
cool dress, Folly. How does it feel to be the tail of the kite? Folly ignores Alec's remark. Your father and I appreciate the fact that you made a special effort. Wearing makeup. Very becoming. That one blemish on your forehead hardly showed at all. But I wish you'd worn your hair down. Gee, thanks, Alex says, opening the refrigerator. Did you guys eat all my yogurt? For heaven's sakes, eat something besides yogurt. You're too thin as it is. A small moan escapes Hughes. You two don't start. Start? Start what, Volley says. I was trying to be nice, Alex snaps back. You stopped being nice to me a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got we've got that scene, and we can we can just we can just see that young teenager, and we can see mother, and, and she's calling her mother by her first name, right? Oh Bob? yeah, mm-hmm. well, she, that's everybody in the family has always called their mother by their first name. It's a strange family. Yeah, <laughs> strange family. How about that dog, by the way? Oh, yeah, she's dog? a good dog. All right, so for our final read here, it's nice to have a family member that you can lean on as we navigate, you know, sort of the world of, of growing up. And Alex had that. She had it in Ted, her grandfather, right? Right. And you actually opened the book, um, Alex Dances, Marianne, with a little reflection on how Alex thinks of her grandfather through a story that's been told. Could you read that for us? Sure. Alex remembers... I call my grandfather Pops. I've always called him that. I didn't remember why I never thought about it until one of my girlfriends asked me where the name came from. We weren't very old, nine or ten maybe, and we were at Pops and Anson's house, the three of us playing Monopoly in the sunroom. I guess Pops was babysitting. Anyway, when I asked him, he leaned back laughing and told us the story. One afternoon when you were three, I took you downtown to see the new fountain dedicated to your great-grandmother, Dolly Ward. I bought us a treat, chocolate-covered ice cream bars. You got chocolate all over both of us and wiped your sticky little fingers on the new pink smock dress your mother had bought you for Easter. I tried to clean you up, but I didn't do a very good job. When I took you home, your mother hit the ceiling. She was furious with both of us, you for ruining the dress and me for spoiling you. While she scrubbed your face, you kept telling her how good the treat was, saying, Pops, Pops. You call the ice cream man a pop. You call the ice cream a popsicle. That name, she said, is not suitable for a man of your grandfather's distinction. You looked at me as if to explain, and I just smiled and winked, and I didn't mind a bit. Not then and not now. He's been Pops ever since. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. And he's Pops throughout the book as well. Mm -hmm. When she doesn't, uh, she sometimes lives with her Pops and Anson through the book. Uh, Well, unfortunately, uh, Sylvie didn't have the mother to lean on that uh, Alex had the grandfather to lean on through her coming up. And uh, she missed that because she was in this time you were describing earlier, Mary, uh, when things were changing quite a bit. Uh, Women were dressing differently, experiencing different things. It was all coming sort of at them fast, like an avalanche a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, you've got a little short paragraph here. Um, about. you want to say anything about that before? Yeah, she, um, Sylvie's lost her mother two years prior to this, and she doesn't realize at this point that her aunt Andrea has actually taken over that responsibility. Um, so she's feeling sort of isolated, and she's thinking about what's going to happen to her when she has sex. And so this is, this is what she's talking about here. Okay. She says, I know at some point my time will come. I wonder if mothers talk to their daughters about such things. I hardly think so. It seems so obvious when one takes a step out of bounds and our hands are slapped. But when are we supposed to be taught what is proper and why and what is not and why? And what to expect and how to act when the time is suddenly ripe for marriage or whatever will happen to us as grown-ups. Wouldn't it be better to have advice and warning about all of these things, the ways of the world, and not have to hear about it from our friends or, God forbid, our brothers and sisters? Anyway, I wish I had a mother to talk to. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) But she's got some... Uh, some other folks. Her her big brother's pretty good to her. He's Either. good. Yeah, he, he takes yeah. care of her. He's, he's he never lets her down. Never lets her down. So, um, listeners, we're going to have a lot of information in the show notes, uh, links to 
websites for Mary and Marianne and uh, any, any social media. And there'll be some pictures of them in the studio here and some pictures of their book covers and other things you can find out about them and how to find their books and their writing. Uh, Marianne, it's been great having you on the show. Well, after having known each other, uh, you, had, you had written the super blurb for, for uh, yeah. Whirlykick, uh, yeah. Downton, Downton was, Abbey meets yeah. the New South. Yeah, yeah I remember that. that. One of the, isn't, that isn't that great? That's, that was good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. So, yes, yeah, finally good to have you on the show. And, and you know, It's been you know, a pleasure. And Mary, uh, from our meeting up in the mountains to here in the studio, yeah, it's been great. Well, yeah. thank you for having me in Charlotte. Yeah, and I love going back to Lumina. Mm-hmm. That attracted me because of my family history oh, yeah. there. And, and people can learn a lot about uh, Riceville Beach, um, through this uh, novel that has a love story to it and the dancing, and they can learn a lot about the textile world through your trilogy, uh, Marianne. So uh, listeners, uh, go out there and buy some books. Uh, Thank you all for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.